This is a Federal News Network podcast. Jason Weiss, DOD's first ever chief software officer, is stepping down at the end of this week. The CSO position is the department's first attempt to put a single official in charge of everything from mainframe COBOL to DevSecOps pipelines to classified weapon systems. Weiss talked with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about some of his takeaways from his tour of duty at DOD. One of the greatest lines that I heard coming into this position was this particular technology was written before Voyager 2 launched and demonstrates the staying power of COBOL in the Department of Defense. And it's at that moment, you kind of have this epiphany that, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not just covering software that was created and defined even a decade ago. I'm, I'm going back several decades in terms of the real estate that has to be covered. And so I think uh, that realization and appreciation that when we talk about modernization, we're not talking necessarily about just technical debt that was acquired over the last year. We're, we're truly talking about ecosystems that by law, because of the color of money problem, they can use dollars for sustainment only. Uh, and when you have dollars by law that says you can only use for sustainment, that means you can't even apply a design pattern to try and modernize part of that application using that color of money. And so the problems are quite complex. Uh, and because they're statutory, uh, as we like to say, a directive type memo never trumps uh, a statute. <laughs> so you, your, your hands are often tied and you have to really get creative about how you approach certain problem sets here. Let's stick with the color of money problem, because I, I think it's a really interesting one and, and one that the department has at least a window to maybe start proving that it can solve with the BA-8 pilots. I, I've been a little puzzled how, I don't want to say timid, but it, it seems like the department could have been a little bit more aggressive to push more systems into those pilots to try to show some wins. Frankly, I don't understand why the whole color of money barriers don't just go away completely tomorrow for all software systems. But what have you seen if anything that you can say that, that that starts to prove that that can work without diminishing the the oversight role that, that Congress obviously wants to protect? Yeah, I think when we look at the historical scaffolding that was put in place around the way the DoD procures systems, it was by and large hard, hardware-centric. When we had uh, aircraft carriers and satellites, uh, the ideal situation is you only uh, – uh, only create that keel once uh, on a ship, right? Uh, when we look at software, the ramifications of, oh gosh, that algorithm isn't exactly what I need. I need to pivot that. Uh, that can be done in a two-week sprint in a very rapid pivot. And I think that is fundamental to eliminating the color of money issue around software. And that conclusion was further codified with the software is never done study from the defense industrial base, right? That title alone says it. Software is never done. So it never actually goes into sustainment. And when we look at the opportunities that are out there for us to demonstrate progress, I I think that the department as a whole, and I've heard this from the software factories uh, that I've talked to uh, on multiple occasions, we have trouble reducing things into bite-sized tasks sometimes. Uh, We want to look at a set of requirements and say all of these requirements need to be present, and we're not capable as an organization to effectively prioritize and recognize that just because something has been deprioritized doesn't mean that it's not a valid requirement. It just means that the warfighter has said, hey, I need this first and foremost, 
then I need this. And oftentimes we see uh, feedback coming into us here in DOD CIO that sometimes programs and the oversight of those programs continue to struggle with this concept. They say it all has to be present or we can't proceed. And I think when we look at the, the conversation around money and you look at the software ecosystem and how malleable it is compared to something complex like hardware, there's a lot more room there for freedom of navigation than what we as a department are willing to give it, uh, even under the current constructs of Title X. There, there obviously are examples where, where programs or software factories have been able to, as you said, break things down into bite-sized chunks and do continuous delivery types of things. Based on what you've seen in, the, in this role over the past year and change, what are the sorts of things that enables that to happen? And what are the sorts of things that inhibit that? Are, are they organizational constructs? Is it funding issues? All of the above. Where, where, to the extent there have been successes, what have it enabled those? Yeah, I would say that there are two things in particular that have enabled the successes that I, I think are amazing within the DoD. And the first is uh, senior rank uh, individuals who actually speak software, who understand the nuances of software and understand things like software containerization uh, and orchestration of containers. That ability to uh, be able to speak in that language and bridge the gap between uh, the engineer that's actually doing the work as an individual contributor and the various oversight committees. And the, the second part is the politics and how uh, suave that particular leader might be, understanding that they need to create a groundswell of support uh, and fundamentally recognize when it's time to compromise on something and add a little bit of overhead that might slow the process down in the name of moving things forward. Uh, And we see that quite often where we have these pockets of success, that it really is expertise in the senior rank. uh, And second, that ability to actually reach out across the organization, create that grassroots foundation of support and smartly compromise uh, in the name of continuing progress forward. And I just want to be clear, when you say expertise in the senior ranks, are you talking about within the IT community itself or in in more senior general uh, military leadership positions or both? So it's it's definitely both. And in particular, I'm thinking about the 06 and above uh, part of the the service. When we look at uh, organizations like Kessel Run, what Colonel Bichkowski has been able to do over there is, is phenomenal, right? He demonstrates uh, and epitomizes that type of senior leadership that uh, both is fluent in technology and understands the uh, the lingo, as well as has that ability to reach out across the organization to partner with folks across the aisle and everywhere from DOT and E uh, to other parts of the Air Force to ensure that progress is made and it doesn't actually stall for an extended period of time because of uh, what could be perceived from an outsider looking in as uh, uh, a fundamental shortcoming of our processes here at the DoD. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is just digital natives kind of aging into those roles. Is it is it more of a mindset, or do you need somebody with formal training who knows how to code sitting in an 06 billet? So I don't I don't believe that they need to have formal training, but I do think that they need to have exposure to that technology and have a passion. We see a lot of junior officers out there that I've interfaced with uh, during my time here at DOD that uh, took a couple of 
computer science classes while they were in school and have been able to, on the side, apply those principles and techniques to help them in their day job. And it it really resonates with me personally. My backstory, when I joined the Navy right out of high school as a cryptologic technician and deployed during the first Gulf War overseas, uh, I had access to uh, a database. And of course, it was a different era. The uh, the admin passwords hadn't been changed. But my ability to go, hey, I'm repeating this over and over. I'm going to automate this. I'm going to make the lives of myself and other people who sit this watch uh, during different parts of the watch cycle easier. You, you could do that. And, and I think that's what we really see happening again today with a lot of the, the junior officers in particular. They're looking at these problems and they're going, I, I know how to do a little bit of data science and a little bit of coding to make life better for, for me and my shipmates uh, in the Navy, as an example. Jason Weiss, DOD's first ever chief software officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Weiss will be stepping down at the end of this week. Hear the full interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.